the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Nineteen young men traveled to the United States, some on tourist visas, others on student visas, and stay here for a protracted period of time, many of whom exceed their 90 days, and yet it seems to go entirely unnoticed. They set up camp and begin taking classes in commercial airline pilot training. But they're very specific in telling the instructor they're not interested in learning how to take the plane off the ground, nor land the plane, just how to fly the plane once it gets in the air. On a single morning, one Tuesday back in 2001, they all board flights, sitting in the first-class section of a number of major airliners in four strategic communities around the United States. They engage in conversation in Arabic, and yet no one seems to notice. And, of course, by 8 o'clock that morning on the East Coast, the first commercial airliner had been flown into the World Trade Center, and the world as we know it changed and changed drastically. It might be argued that in the days and weeks and months preceding September the 11th of 2001, that it should have been obvious, that we should have known that something was going on, because, after all, so many of their activities were hidden in plain sight. That not only, I think, is a great description of the events that led up to the tragedy that we know now as 9-11, but then to the title of a new book that helps to explain in great detail from a news and historical slash biblical perspective what else has been hidden in plain sight before the church, and that is the signpost of the coming of the Antichrist. Joining me today in studio is the author of this new book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Davidson. Mark, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me on your program, Greg. I guess it can be fairly reasonably argued that much of what led up to 9-11, for those that could have been paying attention, maybe arguably should have been paying attention, we just kind of seemed to ignore. We ignored it until it was too late. Is the same thing true post-9-11 from a prophetic standpoint of what's been going on in the world stage and in history that a lot of these events unfolding in light of biblical prophecy is largely being ignored by the church? I believe so. Uh, I think it's because we're looking in the wrong places. We're looking for something to come out of Europe or Rome. And we look at the Middle East and we say, well, there's a bunch of chaos. There's a bunch of events going on. And we think perhaps that, uh, yeah, it's it may support prophecy, but there's nothing specific. And the specific things we may be looking for in Europe just aren't happening. And so we just see all these events before us. 
Take us back. Uh, many of us can recall back to a time in the late 1970s, for example, when there was a good percentage of Christians, many of whom were spurred on by uh, the writings of people like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, that felt fairly well convinced based on their interpretation of uh, Daniel 7 and 9, Ezekiel 38 and 9, that the the hook, so to speak, would be put into the jaw of Gog and Magog and pulled down upon Israel uh, to launch what would be the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And the interpretation at that time was, well, this clearly had to mean the Soviet Union. Well, as we know, in history, the Soviet Union has uh, since come and gone and been splintered apart to and fro. Um, Much of what we thought would transpire surely by the mid-1980s, certainly by the end of the the decade, if not the millennium, if not ushered in by the change to the new millennium, all of this has come and gone. Now some folks are even pointing to uh, this year, December of this year, that maybe some secret Mm -hmm. is hidden within the Mayan calendar that will tell us when it all comes to a conclusion. What has changed and, and what has perhaps been the failure of our understanding and application of scripture and prophecy in specific, whether we're talking about Daniel or Ezekiel or even the book of Revelation, uh, that back then in the 1970s, we thought so sure we understood that now today, 30 years later, has been proven to be so wrong. Well, prior to the 1970s, for about 1800 years, we've been going on the the momentum that the Antichrist was going to be coming out of a revived Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Irenaeus and uh, um, Hippolytus, uh, a couple of the church fathers, uh, first mentioned this, that that uh, the lion with wings in Daniel 7 was ba- ancient Babylon and that the, the great terrible creature was Rome and that the iron legs in the statue was Rome. And the city so built on seven hills, Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, they also failed to mention that potentially the Antichrist could have come out of San Francisco because it's built on seven hills as well. As is Constantinople. <laughs> there you go. Um, so 1800 years of momentum that never really changed and so now we see we saw back in the 60s and 70s the European community coming together it had six members and then seven members and then when Hal Lindsey's book came out uh, I think we were just starting to uh, get into nine members and then around it was around 1980 or so Greece joined and we had ten and so we thought there's our ten toes there's our ten horns coming out of the Roman the old Roman Empire and, uh, well, then by and by it became 15 and then 23. And I think now our last count is about 27. What we're looking at today and the differentiation between what we had historically understood to either be the former Soviet Union or Rome has changed and changed drastically. Yes. Give us some of the insights in terms of your awakening to the events that began unfolding in 2001 that in fact have their history going back to the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries? Well, I had, like everybody else, saw 9-11 and uh, was just wondering what is going on. Um, Europe is basically, all you can hear there is crickets and, and Russia was losing its power. And and uh, so I, I I sought the Lord in this. What's happening? And he caused me to run across some work by a gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson, who was sort of a starter, if you will, of, I believe, of the uh, Islamic Antichrist theory, that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim and that his empire is not Rome, but Islam. And he had had many experiences in the Middle East and and, uh, worked with Muslims and was familiar with Islamic writings and eschatology. And he was comparing Bible writings to to Islamic eschatology writings and saw a striking parallel, even with the false prophet between Islamic writings and Revelation. 
in the Bible. So heretofore, where we had thought largely this would come out of some sort of a political power, be it Moscow or Rome. Now all of a sudden we find out, no, this isn't a great competitive political power, but rather a great competitive religious power. Yes. Elaborate. Yes. Two passages in the Bible that provided arguments for people that the uh, Antichrist was going to come from a Roman Empire that I realized had to be overcome. And I agreed with that because the the statue in uh, Daniel chapter 2 and the people who destroyed the temple toward the end of Daniel chapter 9 were both associated with the Antichrist. And it had to be reconciled to this new theory. And so... In, in chapter 2, what struck me was in chapter 2, verse 40 of Daniel, it says that the empire of the iron legs must crush and pulverize the empires of the other metals, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And in studying history, I realized that Rome had never done that. Rome never conquered Persia. Rome only briefly occupied Babylon. And as far as Greece is concerned, yes, it thoroughly conquered Greece, but Greek culture and language completely took over Rome. So Rome never pulverized or crushed any of them. All it managed to crush was a single small Judean province down in the southeast corner of its empire. And as far as the people of the ruler who will come in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the we had always thought that the people were Romans, because after all, it was Roman soldiers that destroyed the temple, set it on fire. But if you look a little closer in, in, at, at the historical sources, you'll see that the soldiers themselves, though wearing Roman uniforms and under a Roman banner, were Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. The uh, historical sources tell us that when legions, especially in the eastern half of the empire, were based in a given province, they always recruited from the locals. And the the uh, four legions that attacked Jerusalem had all been based in Egypt or Syria or elsewhere. Uh, there's only one legion that may have had Europeans in it, and they would have been Bulgarians. But... Uh, by and large, it was Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4-F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. And as you pointed out, Mark, post 9-11, you began taking a look at what was going on, not only in terms of biblical prophecy, but was un- what was unfolding in the headline news day by day. And as we began, I think, here in the West to get a better understanding of the Islamic worldview, this is not just a peaceful religion hijacked by a handful of extremists, as we were told by then-President George Bush, but rather a conflicting worldview that is at every level at odds with biblical Christianity. Oh, sure, they will acknowledge Jesus of the Bible, but they see him simply as another prophet, yes. not as the only Son of God, by only through him 
one might receive salvation. So it is truly an entirely different gospel that they preach, but not only a different gospel that Islam preaches, but then, too, a very different God that they serve. Yes. Elaborate. Well, uh, further on in the book, after I get past these arguments, I I look at Islam itself. I, I thought, well, what is so special about Islam? And so I decided to look at their God, Allah. And Allah apparently is uh, comes from the words al-Illah, which means the Lord or the God. And it means to anybody, you know, whatever your God is and you say Allah, then that's who you're referring to. But Muhammad changed that. He says, no, Allah is someone specific. And it came from Hubal, the, an idol that was worshipped down there in Mecca. Uh, his tribe worshipped it. And he made it the God. The only God and tossed out all the others. Um, let's see. Oh, the God Hubal, the idol Hubal, actually sounds phonetically quite a bit like the Hebrew Hubal. What we have in our English Bibles, Baal, and and Baal was the false god that most entangled Israel, and uh, Israel suffered the most punishment from God because of that particular false god, that um, I thought, well, maybe maybe the, there's some connection there, and it turns out that according to tradi- tradition, the idol Hubal came from Moab and was brought down by uh, trade routes and so forth, and ended up down there at Mecca. So, interestingly enough, then, we see the historical timeline that, again, weaves us back into connections with false gods that mm-hmm. we see demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But mm-hmm. in this case, it is the leading false god. I mean, we, we can cite many false world religions, but yes. by far the most dominant world religion, by far the most dominant false world religion, mm-hmm. whose teaching is, again, 100% contrarian to the teachings of Scripture, as we know from a Judeo-Christian uh, uh, perspective, uh, would be Islam. Yes. Uh, of all the false gods, like you have Molech, which means the king, uh, but you have Baal or Hubal, which means the Lord. And it is the only false god, the only worship of, of a false god that tries to replace God himself. Uh, an idol that's called the Lord. It's like, oh no, only our God is called the Lord. So Allah is the God or the Lord to whomever is speaking or saying that name. If you hear that from a Muslim and he says Allah, you know you can believe that that God of his is not your God. It is not Jehovah God. It is not the Father of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different God. But if an Arab speaker who, or an Arabic speaker who is not Muslim, say a Christian that lives in Yemen, and he talks about Allah, then you can probably be assured that it, that is your God he's speaking of. In fact, I've seen in Arabic Bibles, they refer to Allah regularly, our God, as Allah. Because in the original Arabic, it does mean that. The only reason we, we associate it with being the Islamic God is because 99% of all Arabic speakers are Muslim. All right. With that said, walk us through, if you would, and we don't want to give away the entire plot of the book, obviously, but walk us through then some of the connection that you've seen then 
through Ezekiel and Daniel in specific that begins to to write the story that helps us better understand that we're not really talking about Rome here or even back in the day the old Soviet Empire, but rather more more accurately and given what's going on in the current uh, historical timeline of, of the spread of Islam, how it is spreading, the manner in which it's spreading, that we're actually talking about the Antichrist coming up out of Islam. Walk us through that. All right. Well, I started by exploring, I, I realized I had to go back and explore the entire Bible, particularly the prophetic books, including Revelation. I was looking for those passages that would speak of the times before the tribulation or times before uh, those events that we knew were the Antichrist, like the little horn coming up out of the beast with the ten horns, or the little horn that comes out of the four horns of the goat in Daniel chapter 8. So I, I caught these passages, and in looking at them in detail, it it actually says, toward the end of each vision, that these visions are applicable to the end time. They're not ancient times. They haven't been fulfilled yet. Um, in Daniel chapter 8, the angel tells Daniel twice that this vision pertains to the end time, the time of breath, the time of the end. And in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are still alive when Christ arrives. In fact, it even says, and they were allowed to live a little bit longer after Christ had arrived. So they're contemporaries of the end time. They're also contemporaries of each other. And then in looking through Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and realizing these events probably pertain to the end times and realizing that if the Antichrist was coming out of the Middle East in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we're talking about the nations in that area and, and what happens to them prior to the Antichrist, the seven seals of Revelation chapter 6 began to appear. The first four seals, which are the four horsemen, prior to the fifth seal, the fifth seal being the martyrs that died during the tribulation. The first four seals then could reasonably be considered to be prior to that, prior to the tribulation. And as it turns out, when you look at and you lay out all the pieces on the table of, of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and the ram and the goat of Daniel chapter 8 and the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, that the four horsemen and the four beasts all come together to form the same four sets of events, that all three visions are talking about the same set of events, but from different perspectives. And that's the picture that gelled, that formed before right. my very eyes. Walk me through then, because you, you commit some time inside the pages of Hidden in Plain Sight to some very specific members of this cast of characters, uh, one of whom was Iran. Yes. And of course, we know Iran is capturing a great deal of attention in the headlines these days. We also know that Iran, more so than most nations, though certainly not exclusively, has, has very forcefully set herself up against Israel. Uh, yes. Ahmadinejad uh, specifically has talked about the desire for the destruction of Israel. Now, while yes. that's talked about amongst a lot of countries, not in as public a fashion and an abashed fashion the way Iran has. What is Iran's potential role in all of this? Well, there are four sets of events that uh, pretty much fall out of these visions. And Iran will be the dominant player of the second signpost, the second set of events. The first set of events have already come and gone. And all we saw was things going on in the Middle East and didn't realize their significance. But that's over, and so now we are seeing the beginning stage of the second sign, the second signpost. And yes, Iran will dominate it. What are some of those events of the first signpost, just to put this in the time order sure. for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Well, we have 
the four in the four beasts we had the first beast the lion with wings and of the four horsemen we had the rider on the white mm-hmm. horse those two symbols make up that first signpost and what we are looking at is that those beasts represent modern nations of the middle east the modern inheritors of what we think of as the ancient empire so what had been at one time uh, for example a babylon uh, is now iraq now iraq mm-hmm. yes and the rider on the white horse was re- received a crown he received a stephanos crown not a diademe crown he competed against others and won and became the leader of Iraq. And this rider on the white horse, he also kind of strutted around on his white horse, calling himself a hero. And that's what heroes do. They ride white horses. That's common in history as well as in the Bible. And in um, then he was also uh, had a bow. And that bow is the capability to launch missiles, to launch you know, airborne projectiles, and uh, no mention is made of the arrows. Did he have arrows? Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say he did. doesn't say he didn't. said he had a bow. It just said he had a bow. And the Greek word for bow is toxon. The Romans picked that up to mean poison, but toxon actually originally meant archery. And poisons today can be chemical or biological or radiological, i.e. WMD. Mm-hmm. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4, F-O-U-R, signpost.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. You have walked as Mark through... Two of the four signposts, and I don't want to give the whole plot away, as we say, because there's so much more to come. But as we wrap a bow on your entire analysis of what you have seen, not only in Scripture, but what you see happening in headline news, what's the big warning for the church today? Some would argue that, well, this is all very well fascinating. Nobody really knows for sure. And so in the meanwhile, let's just kind of go about our business. But I would suspect as uh, in all cases where we're, we're given scripture in advance from a prophetic standpoint, yes. uh, whether it's heralding the coming of Jesus Christ or other events, that there is a warning that is to be heeded by the church. What's the warning here? Well, the warning is that the next event is going to be rather um, horrendous, I guess. Is, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, we saw, I mean, the Bible talks about, I believe, this, this leader of a modern Babylon, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and then the, the uh, unnatural things that are done to the beast, to the lion with wings, where it was forced to stand and his heart was replaced, that's Iraq. It was democratized. You take a country that has anciently known nothing but despots and, and tyranny and try to turn it into a, a democracy. How unnatural. And then the next step is Iran and the, our, the struggle within the government. But 
the fruit of that argument, when that when that's resolved and the lower horn becomes the taller horn, then becomes the next event, part of the second signpost, the main part, and that is a war in the Middle East, a major war in the Middle East, where Iran will run out to the west, all the way to the Mediterranean, to the north and to the south and to the Arabian Peninsula, and occupy, invade and occupy. And they are told, the bear is told, to go from country to country to country to country. And Ahmadinejad has said that his country, Iran, its mission is to spread the Islamic revolution, Mm -hmm. to go from country to country to country. The ram is told to go north, south, and west. The bear is told to consume much flesh, and the red horseman is given a sword to allow men to slay one another. And Iran then will be able to occupy and control all of the oil oil fields within Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia, thereby potentially being able to shut off one quarter of the world's oil flow. And to make good on their promise to wipe Israel off the map? No, Israel will not be bothered or touched at this time. They may be, get pressured, but I do not believe at this time they are a target. So essentially then what we're talking about is Iran coming in and laying to waste the weaker, more vulnerable Islamic neighbors. Not so much laying to waste, causing their governments to change, forcing a different mode of rule. Some of this in response to the so-called Arab Spring? No. uh, Actually, the Arab Spring pertains to signpost number three. Um, That's the, the Arab Spring is setting us up for signpost number three to happen. Um, what what Iran is going to do is start a Shia revolution within all the various countries in the Middle East, east of Turkey and east of Syria and east of Egypt. So now, now the Shia are at war with the Sunni. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the dethroning of Saddam Hussein, bringing him to justice, forcing about a change in power, which heretofore had been largely a secular government. We're now seeing the drive toward a religiously dominated government, which I think is going to be true again in, in Egypt and Libya as well, previously secular, now swinging toward a religious or, or Islamatized government. So where we would think we did a great thing in terms of turning the country toward democracy, democracy, what we've really done is we have we have removed what had been one of the natural enemies yes. of Iran that contained. to some degrees had contained Iran, that now all of a sudden that one roadblock to Iran has been taken out of the equation. Yes. The United States is completely responsible um, for the first signpost, the raising of the lion. You know, there's been this question of, well, why don't we see the United States in prophecy? Why doesn't the Bible mention anything of the United States in prophecy? And here I believe we see a case where the United States is not mentioned, but the actions of the United States are displayed quite plainly. It said the lion was forced to stand and its heart was replaced. Well, who did that forcing and who did that replacing? It was the United States. So we are effectively being used to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, and I, I believe that when George Bush said he believed God told him to go into Iraq, I, I believe it. Just perhaps for different reasons. For different reasons than we thought. Yes. Walk us through briefly, if you would, Mark, the fourth and perhaps most critical signpost. Well, 
at the end of the third signpost, the four nations will have completely taken over the Middle East and formed this great confederacy. Mm -hmm. It's a four-nation confederacy, not an alliance, a confederacy. The Bible shows this political unity, if you will. They see themselves as effectively, what, standing up against... Uh, the infidel like the United States? No, it's against Shia Islam. Okay. Now, I don't know what form of government they'll finally take, but it's going to be Sunni, you know. Um, but they will rule from Libya to Pakistan, you know, from the borders of western borders of Egypt to the eastern borders of Iran. And it's going to be one great nation. But when that leader, that dynamic leader, the goat, the great horn of the goat, dies and breaks and the four nations come out from it, the four nations will break from the great nation, Susa will be the near the hub of the where the four boundaries come together. Uh, Daniel said it would be the direction of the four winds, so it would be the four nations. When that occurs, the fourth signpost begins. The Antichrist will arise out of one of those four nations, just like in Daniel chapter eight with the goat. The small horn arises out of one of those four horns. It's going to arise out of one of those four nations. And it says that this goat, this goat's horn, the little horn, grows in power to the south and to the east. And if you can imagine, and I show it in an illustration in the book, the four nations, basically northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast, for the power of the Antichrist to grow to the south and to the east pretty much means it has to start from the northwest quadrant. So that would be the Turkish, Syria, northwestern Iran area. And uh, he will arise as the ruler of that nation. There may be a lot of chaos. In fact, there may be one ruler after another. We won't know who it is. But when he reaches out to conquer the Egyptian nation and then the Arabian nation to unify them, I believe the Bible is telling us that he's the one. Now, his true nature as Antichrist won't be revealed yet. The Bible says it's not revealed until he actually is starting the, tri the tribulation. But he would be the uh, the candidate. The one question that whenever a discussion of eschatology comes up, folks want to immediately go to, and maybe it's a good point to wrap up our conversation on, and that is, as we take a look at the timeline of all of this, we know that there's been much wrestling over Daniel's 70 weeks. Given where you see us in the timeline, that mm -hmm. we have completed one of the four and are on the cusp of the, of, of the opening of the second, mm -hmm. with two more to remain, uh, can you hazard a guess as to what kind of a timeline potentially we're talking about? Well, I uh, went to links in the book to uh, avoid that. Just that, yeah. Right. <laughs> and leave it but, to me to ask you that question. <laughs> but, but, I mean, if you were to ask yourself, how long does it would it take Iran to invade the Middle East? How long would it take four nations to come back and form a great nation and break up and then one of the four pieces start to reunite the other four? All right, let how me long ask, would that take? Five, ten, twenty years? Let me answer the question for you, then. Mm -hmm. In the same period of time that we saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall... The cessation of the Soviet Empire, the breaking up of that, the coming together of the European Union, uh, the the beginning of the dismantling of the empires of, of people like Saddam Hussein, all of that has taken place, in some cases, barely a generation. Right. I believe so, we have maybe a generation. So the, the short answer is, look up. Because your salvation draweth nigh, while no man knows the day or the hour, we know assuredly that he will come. 
and that uh, certainly while we are given the mandate to occupy until he returns, uh, there is much that can be seen uh, where many of these stories are uh, concealed within Scripture. Uh, they are beginning to be revealed within the headline news. And I think that uh, Mark Davidson does an excellent job in kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. It is certainly a new twist on what we heretofore had always understood to be uh, the involvement of Rome as being the seat of power from which emanates the Antichrist. But when you begin to clearly understand the role of Islam in the world stage of these two major differing worldviews between Judeo-Christendom on one hand and Islam on the other, then all of a sudden the pieces of the puzzle of Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation all begin to come together. It's a fascinating look at what heretofore has been considered to be Hidden in Plain Sight. That, by the way, the title of the new book. And while published by Zulon Press, you can get it through Amazon.com. Also available through Mark Davidson's website at 4signposts. That's F-O-U-R, 4signposts.com. I know we've just kind of scratched the surface today, Mark, but we appreciate you dropping by for a visit. And I think we all have a lot more homework to do with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and your book right in the middle. Thanks again for a great job. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. A look at Hidden in Plain Sight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In the perspective of some, particularly those in the abortion industry, they would say, well, during the course of the last 44-something years, um, up to 58 million children have been aborted as women have exercised their constitutional right to choose. I mean, after all, it's choice. Um, it's a private decision, according to the interpretation of the Constitution. And so why all of this talk? Why all of this noise? Well, it's a valid question. Why? Uh, beyond the obvious answer that 58 million fewer people have been born in the United States because of abortion. But beyond that, there's the untold carnage on the lives that remain behind. Think of it. Every aborted baby has a mommy and a daddy, grandparents, in some cases perhaps siblings, brothers and sisters. Much of the human toll from an emotional standpoint never gets accounted for and ultimately in the process of exercising her constitutional right to choose as the supreme court told us in 1973 it is often the woman and sometimes the man but for the majority of cases the woman who has to bear the spiritual and emotional brunt of abortion Joining me tonight in studio is Sharon Landis. Sharon is the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, a ministry of compassion that specifically focuses on post-abortive women and men. And Sharon, is always great to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm happy to be here. Why is this an issue that we don't hear much about? I mean, I would imagine there's got to be at some level an acknowledgement well, this is not just fetal tissue. This is actually a life that has been terminated. And as such, feelings of, did I make the right decision? What have I done? Why have I done it? A child that will never be known, a brother or sister that will never be introduced to other brothers and sisters. There must be some very deep-seated feelings that women deal with that they're told essentially by the abortion industry just kind of ignore it you'll get over it stuff all that down because after all you're just exercising your right to choose it just isn't talked about anymore when i first started in this ministry back in 1987 even up to 2000 churches would talk more about it they would talk about it 
people would talk about it and women would come forward and say how terrible they feel. But I think since in the last 10 years, at least, maybe 12, it's just kind of gone underground. Hmm. And I don't find very many churches ever bringing up this word in a sermon or ever. And it's really not taught. You don't find any articles on it in magazines back in the 1990s, there were some articles in magazine about women who had been healed from their abortions, but that that all ended. I mean, it just got stopped. So it's just not acceptable, not politically correct. Whatever it is, it's not talked about. So if a woman is having those feelings of great sorrow, I mean, she can't tell anybody. She's afraid to. She doesn't know who to tell. I mean, she might confide in her best friend, but the best friend really doesn't know unless she's had something similar. So, but I find most women don't tell anyone. They stuff it down and keep it secret, but it does take a toll in their life. And I would imagine that it's got to, Sharon, because in spite of the fact that there are clear-cut efforts of either, you know, the crimes of commission or omission, omission perhaps by the church and not addressing this issue more effectively, commission by those in the abortion industry that intentionally wish to dismiss the emotional toll of abortion, uh, largely for financial reasons, and yet... Women have to know I'm having these feelings, and yet no one wishes to validate my feelings. But the lack of validation by family, by the church, by society doesn't make those feelings of guilt or shame or confusion or wondering. It doesn't make those feelings go away, does it? No, they just get deeper buried. If, if they can, if a woman can talk about her abortion to her family, if, the more people that know about it, the, the easier it will be on her. But for most of the women I see. They haven't told anyone. And the deeper they, zero, <laughs> the deeper they bury this, while it might help them at some levels to function, does it not end up having a ripple effect on almost every aspect of life? Meaning, relationships, trust factors with men, with God, um, feelings affects, of shame yeah. and guilt. All of that it would seem to me would be like tentacles that would just reach in and have uh, take its emotional toll on almost every aspect of a woman's character and psyche. It does. It affects her whole life. And she may or may not be aware that it is affecting her life. She probably isn't, but it does affect her life because abortion is traumatic. It's a traumatic experience. So if she keeps it stuffed inside of her and never can talk about it, she really has post-traumatic stress disorder. And that can express itself in lots of dysfunctional behavior, lots of self-destructive behavior, um, alcohol, drugs, trust issues, you know, in feeling low Mm self-esteem, lots of ways. Shopping, spending, whatever you do to help you try to feel good. And so if she has no place to talk about it, sometimes when people, um, we, they hear about the class for the first time and they kind of think, gee, maybe I should, maybe I need that. And then they'll probably dismiss it. Then they hear about it again. Last year we had four women and one woman, she heard about it, that she said, maybe I need to go to that class because she'd had several abortions. And then she just forgot about it, but she went back to church the next week and they had it in the bulletin again. And she says, oh, I think I need to call her. So she called me and she said, I think maybe I need to go to your class. But she was so disconnected from her feelings, she didn't even know if the abortions affected her or not. Mm. I mean, she completely had disconnected. And that really becomes a coping mechanism, yeah, doesn't it? it is. So in spite of the fact that we try to mentally disconnect 
from the experience of abortion, the emotional toll on, as we mentioned, trust, relationships, substance abuse, eating disorders, whatever it might be, it all comes to the surface one way or another. And I would imagine, Sharon, exacerbated even more so for the post-abortive woman who has perhaps had one or two abortions. Or three or four. Or three or four. Finally meets the right guy, wants to now have children, and suddenly can't. That's a double grief. Wow. Big time. Because she has the grief of the loss of her children, and now she can't get have children. And then I imagine huge. the relational feelings in terms of trust, especially from a from a spiritual dynamic. There's got to be that sense of God is now officially punishing me. Lots of women feel that way. Yes. But he's not. <laughs> but they do feel that he is punishing them. They, they punish themselves plenty. They, a lot of women don't have children because they did abort their children, so they don't deserve to have children. So there's a lot of reasons. They're very self-punishing. God, God's not going to punish them, but we do punish ourselves mm-hmm. because they don't. They hate what they did. Many women do. And of course, the the, the utter lack of a sense of acknowledgement of those feelings, um, even the ability to to validate the pain, is completely stripped away. Not only by those within the abortion industry who do so because they have a profit motive. But let's face it, society, and you mentioned some of the church's silence on this, this is not a topic we want to talk about. We want to leave this in the category of, well, it's a woman's right to choose, somehow that that's elevated to a level that makes it completely not only unquestionable, but unconscionable to think that there would be any um, recourse or, or any side effect of having simply exercised your right to choose. Well, I've worked with more than 350 women and every woman says that after she had the abortion, she, it, she, it, what she experienced wasn't what she expected. She never knew going into it she would feel like she did after. Wow. Never. So there's a, 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 a setup of expectations that are not met. And then once those feelings come, any sense of validation of saying, it's okay, it's normal that you should feel this way, and that there is hope and healing available to you, is completely stripped away. Yeah, there's not too many people around to do that. I love to talk to people about this, but then I'm a grief counselor. I do, I do grief. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's important to talk about it. It's important to talk about any loss or any grief, because if you hold it inside of you, it just keeps... We're short-circuiting a natural human emotion and expression. I mean, we've all known individuals who have lost a loved one, and suddenly the next day they just say, boy, they've sure got it together. She's holding herself together so well. You can hardly tell that she lost her husband of 40 years. And you've got to wonder eventually something that that facade is going to crack and fall apart because it's not normal for us to dismiss grief or not to acknowledge loss and goes through that right. pro- that grieving process is a part and parcel well, to the healing process. Isn't it, it is. We're not going to ever know comfort until we mourn. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's why healing tears. If you cry your tears, you will be healed. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, if, it, it if not we, only is it, is if it we logical, give, it's scriptural. Yeah, we need to. I mean, t- talking to women, I try to encourage them to give themselves permission to grieve to feel the feelings. And yeah, it's going to be hard, especially if it's been 
30 years and you've pushed them all down and you've ran away from them and you don't want to feel them. But if you're willing to let them come up and let God comfort you through this process, you'll be free. They'll be gone. And that's the question perhaps lingering on the minds of those eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, that perhaps have been down that road. They to themselves, in their quiet thoughts, acknowledge, yes, I made this decision back when, for whatever reason or whatever multiple times, drudge up all of those thoughts and feelings and face this decision head on now after all these years? Can any good come of that? And if you're asking yourself that question right now, we're going to meet a special guest in a moment that's going to help lend some insight to that. Let's take a brief time out. If you've just uh, tuned in a bit late, we're in studio this evening with Sharon Landis. Sharon is the founder and executive director of Healing Tears. And um, we'll get Sharon to tell us a bit more about the ministry coming up later on in the program. I can point you in the direction of their website, which is simple. It's HealingTears.org. O-R-G. That's HealingTears.org. There's all kinds of resources and classes available, and we'll tell you more about that coming up momentarily. Right now, let's pause for a moment. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 